Good morning, church. Sweet watching those kids <laughs> wave those palm branches. Isn't it great? A couple of those kids were my kids. I'm very proud as a daddy. Well, we come this morning to what has become known as Palm Sunday. The day Jesus rides in on a donkey and presents himself to his people as the Messiah. And his disciples spread palm branches along the way of his journey. Palm Sunday marks the first day final days of the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. To get an understanding of the significance of this final week, the four gospel accounts of the New Testament devote 25 to 30 percent of their material to the final days of Jesus. And Palm Sunday falls into that concentrated material. Now all four gospel writers include Palm Sunday in their respective accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. The gospel writer that I've chosen this morning, through whom we will look at this day in the life of Christ, is the gospel of Luke. And what we'll see this morning is that the king offers peace. That will be the title with which we'll advance in our exposition this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and we will be looking at verses 28 through 44 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there to give you some guardrails to hold on to as we work through this text, we're going to see Jesus' presentation, or rather preparation for entry, and that's going to be in verses 28 through 34. Then we're going to see Jesus's presentation as king, and then finally Jesus' prophecy of destruction. So Jesus' preparation, presentation, and prophecy, and I hear that you can't graduate Dallas Seminary without learning alliteration. All right, so we begin with Jesus' preparation. Jesus is going to prepare himself for presenting himself as king to the people of Israel. Luke says, beginning in verse 28, And he, that is Jesus, said these things. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mission. He's going to Jerusalem. He has a purpose, a resolution to get to Jerusalem. And if we zoomed out the lens on the book of Luke, we'd see Luke include statements by Jesus that he's headed to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, when the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke 18.31, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, we are going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. It would not be wrong to say that Jesus has a predetermined date with destiny. He's going to Jerusalem to fulfill the word of God. To fulfill the word of God. And Jesus' purpose for going to Jerusalem is implied in verse 29, where Luke says, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethpage are located east of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. 
Scholars dispute over the location of Bethpage, but they generally agree that it's close to Bethany. Now, if we trace Jesus' course over the last couple of chapters of Luke and into this chapter, we'd see him coming from Jericho, which is east of Bethany, moving into Bethany and Bethpage, summoning the Mount of Olives and going toward the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you should understand this movement of Jesus is real significant for at least two reasons. One is, this movement of Jesus from the east to the west and into the temple is the direction that the glory of God would move toward when the time of restoration was to come to Israel. From the Old Testament, we know that the manifest glory of the Lord had left the temple because of Israel's disobedience. And according to Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple out of the east side of the temple. The faithful Israelites awaited the day God's glory, His manifest presence would return to to them. And from Ezekiel chapter 43, we learn that the glory of the Lord would return to the temple from the east, moving west along the same path that it left. What direction is Jesus moving in the text? He's moving from the east to the west, the same direction the glory of the Lord was said to return. I can't help but hear in the background things like what John 1, uh, 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Or the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil over Christ's glory was lifted for Peter, James, and John to see. Luke says in Luke 9.32, they saw His glory. Hebrews 1.3, and He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. God's glory has returned in Jesus. And in our story this morning, He's moving toward the temple to present Himself to his people. This movement of Jesus is significant actually for another reason. The Mount of Olives was said in Zechariah 14, 4 through 5 to be the place the Messiah would show himself. Uh, what is Jesus near according to verse 29? He's near the Mount called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives. And we know from the rest of the passage that he will be approaching the Mount of Olives. Now I encourage you, go back and read Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 through 5, because you're going to see in that prophecy that the Messiah is actually going to bring about some geographical changes when he returns. Split the mountain wide open. Now we're not going to see that in this passage. He's not going to do that. Which causes us to have to think, why is it that Jesus didn't do it? And we know from the progress of revelation, progressive revelation, that Jesus was to come one time, the first advent, and he would come again the second advent. And so we believe that at the second advent, Christ will bring about these geological or geographical changes when he returns. But nonetheless, his movement is very commensurate 
with the movement of the Messiah. So there are at least two things going on in this text before Jesus makes his triumphal entry. Number one, the glory of God has returned in Jesus. And number two, Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's Savior King. Now as we continue in the story, we see that preparations need to be made for his travel. Uh, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples about his presentation to Israel. We see the instructions. Look at the end of verse 29. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Notice the emphasis. A colt on which no one yet has ever sat. He's being emphatic. This is a colt that has never been ridden, that makes it appear a colt. This is the pattern of God's choice of animal set apart for his service. And it's always been one of purity. Jesus must ride in on a pure colt. We continue with the preparation. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. If you look throughout history, you will see extravagant processions of kings to their coronation ceremonies. Kings and royalty have been placed in an elephant howdah, which is a carriage placed on the back of an elephant decorated with expensive gems. Or they've made their procession in horse-drawn carriages coated in gold. Or they have been transported on ceremonial barges. And many other luxurious means of transportation have characterized the processions of kings and royalty throughout history. Now you may wonder, why was it not the case for the king of kings? I mean, surely he was deserving of the treatment of royalty, right? Why a donkey? The minor prophet answers that for us. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah has sounded the horn. Your king is coming and he'll come humbly on a donkey. So in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Jesus told his disciples to fetch a donkey to make preparations for his presentation. And the disciples do just as Jesus said. Verses 32 through 34, take a look there. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. The preparations for Jesus' kingly presentation occur just as Jesus said so. And the transportation prepared for Jesus was exactly as Zechariah had prophesied. But let's not miss this. King Jesus would come humbly. He would come in humility. Yes, Zechariah prophesied it exactly, which is a clear indication that God knows and reveals the future to his prophets, and that alone is amazing, right? But the characteristic that we see highlighted in the coming of the king of kings is that he is humble. I believe it's true that humility is the defining characteristic of the incarnate Son of God. 
The mere fact that the eternal Son of God took on a temporal human nature is the epitome of humility. Mark Jones said, the ancient of days became the infant of days, throughout whose entire number he experienced humiliation. And this is affirmed by the inspired Apostle Paul who said that though Jesus was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There it is. The ancient of days became the infant of days. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From beginning to the end of the life of Christ was marked by humility. Though truly God, he assumed the posture of a servant, humble King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. So Jesus' preparations are made for this glorious day of his presentation as king to his people. Now we come to Jesus' presentation. Now in a Greco-Roman society, when a king came into a city, four things characterized his procession. One, he would enter through a claim. Some claim would be made about the one who enters. Two, he would enter through a symbol If it was a Roman emperor, he would ride in on a white stallion. If he were a Greek, it would be a chariot. Number three, he would enter with an accompaniment of singing. And finally, he would enter the city and find the nearest place of religious sacrifice. So basically, the nearest place of religion. We're going to see all four of those things in Jesus' presentation in these verses. Let's observe some other significant details, though, that are going on here. Verse 35 says, They brought it, the colt, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Uh, These are the disciples that are putting Jesus on the colt. And this is actually reminiscent of King David's language in 1 Kings 1, 33-34 where he instructs his servants as to the way they should lead Solomon to his coronation as king. David says, Take your master's servants with you, put my son Solomon on my mule, and lead him down to Gihon. There Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet will anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and declare, Long live King Solomon. In the context of Scripture, the intent of Luke is obvious. After the fashion of another of Israel's kings, Jesus' disciples will mount him on an animal for his coronation day. Jesus fulfilling typology from the Old Testament. And notice the treatment that Jesus receives. Verse 36 says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Interestingly enough, Luke does not include the detail of the palm branches, but he does include the coats. And obviously, this is intended to show to us the celebratory occasion that this is. This person who is riding in on a donkey is worthy. He's worthy of everything, even something like a coat that's worthy to the people of the day. He's... So the people of Jesus, they're giving him, we could say, some red carpet treatment. He's being treated as a celebrity. His disciples... Treat him so, they think he is the king deserving of the treatment of royalty. The crowd of Jesus' disciples demonstrates his excitement 
Verse 37 says, As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The crowd of Jesus' disciples is praising him. They're joyful. They recognize this is King Jesus. And verse 37 says, They were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're shouting out to all the people in praise. This is the Messiah. This is Israel's King. And in doing so, they're quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. Notice all the Old Testament we're looking at. A whole bunch of Old Testament going on in the passage. Luke adds the words, though, the king to the original psalm to clarify to his readership that Psalm 118, verse 26 is messianic. It's a psalm connected to the Messiah king. So there's no doubt about it, right, that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus presents himself as Messiah king in line with all those Old Testament passages we've looked at. His disciples are excited about it. They're spreading their garments for him, shouting praise to God for his visitation. There is all the pomp and circumstance you would expect from this entry. Jesus presenting himself to his people, and everybody, everybody welcomes him with open arms, saying, Jesus, we love you. Be our king. Well, not everybody. We read in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Jesus, you need to tell your disciples to hush up. This is an undeniable rejection on the part of the leadership of Israel. They are saying, we don't want you as our king, Jesus. It's an all-out assault against the person of Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. It's no wonder they don't like Jesus, as we can conclude from the Gospels. I mean, ever since Jesus showed up, he's made them look really bad, hasn't he? I mean, these guys, these Pharisees, they don't like looking bad. Their image in the public arena is everything to them. And their knowledge of the Scripture, their praying and fasting, their religious pomp was available for all Israel to see. But time and time again, Jesus had exposed them for the frauds that they really were, and they just didn't like that. So they say in an underhanded way, you shouldn't be presenting yourself as king to this nation. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a rejection of Jesus. So the Pharisees, as expected, let the air out of the whole thing. And their rejection represents the whole of the nation's rejection because they are leaders in the nation. Now, what's curious about their rejection is that if anyone should have understood that Jesus was the Messiah, it really should have been these guys. It seems like it should have been these guys. I mean, they knew the Old Testament scriptures like the back of their hand. Um, They knew them better than anyone else. So you could have been like the prophecy of Zechariah, and they would have been like, yep, I know that one, our king's coming in on a donkey. And you could have said, the glory of the Lord left the temple according to Ezekiel's prophecy. And they would have been like, yep, but it'll return in the same way it left. So you see, they knew the word, but like Jesus said to them in John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. 
And their example goes to show you can know the word of God but fail to see the one that it's about. Jesus knows that people will study the word and miss him. Jesus knew that the Pharisees would fail to see him and he makes them look real bad in verse 40. Take a look. He says, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The point, even creation recognizes Jesus as king. The stones here are a figure of speech for the inanimate created realm. The leaders of Jesus' day may not recognize him as king, but at least nature does. And why wouldn't nature recognize him? After all, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the purpose for which all things exist. He is the creator. And if his people become silent, his creation will cry out. So Jesus had prepared this donkey, presented himself as king, Lord, Messiah, creator to his people, but he was rejected. Now we move to Jesus' prophecy. Verse 41 says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. And what did he do? Wept over it. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, the nation that rejects him. The word for weep here is uh, klio in the Greek. The idea is to break out in tears because of a painful situation. It's not too much of a stretch to imagine someone kneeling with the tears pouring from his eyes in emotional pain. This is Jesus' response to the rejection of his people and the impending doom that was to come upon them. Jesus weeps after the pattern of an Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says of himself, Oh, that my head were a spring of water. My eye is a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. You can almost put on the lips of Jesus the words of Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus wept over their rejection. You know, I'm a a firm believer in the sovereignty of God and salvation, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins when we are born. And it is a work of divine sovereign grace that he would choose us before the foundation of the world to be saved. But I think we could learn something from the Lord Jesus, couldn't we? At least I know I could. That while God chooses people, we should be sad when people reject him. We should be heartbroken about that. Jesus weeps over the very people who rejected him. I think we could learn from him. Verse 42, Jesus says to the people, if you had known this day, if you'd have known this day, all, that, all that, that the Old Testament talked about, even you, the things which make for peace. Jesus offered them peace, peace with God and peace on earth. The Prince of Peace came to offer peace, but they didn't receive him. So Jesus says, but now they, the things which make for peace, have been hidden from our eyes, or rather from your eyes. 
And to reject King Jesus brings consequences. Verses uh, 43 through 44, Jesus says, For the days will come upon you, speaking to the Israelites, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus here prophesies that the destruction of Jerusalem as a result of their rejection of him, the consequence for their sin was destruction. And that destruction was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans under Titus came in and leveled the place. The Jewish historian of the first century, Josephus, recorded this event. He said, while the holy house, that's the temple, was on fire, Everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain, nor was there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. So that this war went round all sorts of men and brought them to destruction. The way that Jesus said it would happen so many years before was exactly how it happened in the course of history. And again, why did this happen? Because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. They failed to see that Jesus was before them as Messiah King who came to offer peace. So Jesus came, presented himself as Messiah King. It was necessary that the nation accept Jesus as their King for there to be peace. And so it emerges out of this passage is the truth that peace with God hinges on accepting King Jesus. Peace with God hinges on accepting King Jesus. Of course, the Israelites didn't receive him. In just a matter of days, the same crowds that said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord will shout, Crucify him. The consequences of their rejection of Jesus serve as a sober reminder that judgment for sin is real and the final judgment will be just as real and more consequential. This is why the gospel message is so urgent. It's urgent. First, for the unbeliever. Unbelievers need peace with God. There is no peace with God for the unbeliever. Rather, as John 3.36 says, the one who rejects the Son, that is Jesus, will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. God is angry with the unrepentant sinner. There's a a settled disposition on the part of God toward the unbeliever that places him at odds with the creator of the universe. Romans 3.17 says, the way that leads to peace, the unbeliever has not known. There's nothing in the Bible, or nothing that the Bible could say, and therefore nothing that I could say this morning that is favorable to the one who is yet to receive Jesus as king. So the gospel call needs to be heeded today. Today, okay? There's no promise of tomorrow. None of us have that promise. This is why when the gospel is given in the the word of God, it's talked about as something to respond to today, this moment, this moment, respond to the gospel The gospel message is also urgent for us Christians. Um, you know, remember that the good news is not just for unbelievers, <laughs> right? It's for us. That the, the gospel is not just a door we enter through, but rather it's a house in which we live. 
We are to preach it to ourselves. And while we have this glorious peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in His righteousness, we sang about it this morning, have been reconciled to God, we must watch and be ready. We must watch and be ready. Not for Christ's first coming when He came in on a donkey, but for His second coming when He will come again on a white stallion. Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. He will come again as a conquering king. The apostle Peter spoke about the events of the end time, and he said, in light of the the end of the things of this earth, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And similarly, the Apostle John, speaking about our hope we have in the Lord's return, said, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christ's return one day will be a magnificent return and we must not be asleep as those who were in Jesus' day. And so there is a call, I think, from this passage to be those who are sober-minded, ready, looking on the horizon, waiting for the day of the Lord when he will return. Because he will return, right, church? He will come again. He came the first time to die a gruesome death. He'll come again to reign as sovereign king over the universe. And this passage from Palm Sunday I think causes us to reflect once again, am I watching? Am I ready? And if I am, my life is bearing the fruit of one who is looking and waiting for a day when all things will be made right and that sin will be done away with forever. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Christ will reign in a future that will be blessed and will be completely peaceful. Amen. Church, this Palm Sunday, let's remind ourselves of our calling to holiness and godliness and awaiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.